Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focus on antitrust policy, practice, and enforcement around the world. In an increasingly complex environment, we hope to bring insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. Our panel today includes three leading experts in European competition law. Collectively, they have almost 100 years of experience in Brussels. Antoine Van Cleer, Enrique Gonzalez-Diaz, and Isabel Rooms, all of Cleary Gottlieb's Brussels office. It really is a fascinating time in antitrust. The past few years have seen criticism that merger control has been too permissive, debates over the consumer welfare standard, whether policy should be flexed to allow the creation of European champions, whether policy should be restricted to capture killer acquisitions. The appointment of progressive thinkers to US leadership roles, the emergence of the CMA as a force to be reckoned with in the UK, a focus on the digital sector and the new regulatory regimes that are being adopted around the world. At EC level, a series of cases on Article 102 and new vertical restraints guidelines, and pressure to take account of environmental considerations in the application of competition. The European Commission has in many ways been a bastion of stability and moderation. Now at the midpoint in the second term as competition commissioner, Commissioner Vestaya's signature achievement to date has been the Digital Markets Act, adopted only a few weeks ago. She's had a somewhat lower profile during her second term, in part perhaps due to the COVID crisis. But the last few months have seen a series of headline announcements. So here to talk about Commissioner Vestaya midway through her second term, I'm going to turn first to Antoine Van Clair. You've been in Brussels for over 30 years, Antoine. How would you compare Commissioner Vestaya with her predecessors? And what do you think the priorities are for the remaining years of her tenure? Thank you, Nick. Um, it's an interesting question because if you look at Margaret Vestager's two successive mandates at the Commission, I would really start by contrasting the second mandate with the first one before comparing her generally speaking, to her predecessors. And the reason for doing so is that really the two mandates are very different from each other. If you look at the first mandate from 2014 until 2019, it was largely centered on important individual cases and investigations. To tell you the truth, in my view, very little policy. To give you an example, you have this raft of important cases on telecoms, the reduction from four to three or three to two in some cases, is that acceptable or not? Um, the famous uh, Siemens Alstom investigation and prohibition decision uh, in, in, in which we've been involved, as you know, that was all about industrial champions Obviously, there were the very important Article 102 Google cases, which uh, you know, are really the, the background for uh, the DMA reform, which has been adopted, as you know, very recently during the second mandate. But also the first Amazon cases, the book um, investigation, the e-book investigation in which, again, we were involved. In state aid, another very famous case, the Apple tax uh, subsidy case, which was on the first page of many uh, business newspapers. 
So a lot of very important cases and not so much in terms of policy reform, if you accept the reform of the ECLM, the uh, network of European uh, antitrust regulators. Now, if you look at the second mandate, it's really in very stark contrast. Not so many cases, although there were important ones too, but not so many important cases, possibly because of COVID and now uh, the Ukraine uh, crisis. So very little cartel cases, for example, but a reform area in all the important areas of uh, EU competition law. You know, think of uh, vertical guidelines, reform is ongoing, horizontal guidelines, again, the reform is in the works, uh, market definition, the guidelines are being amended. Uh, you mentioned, Nick, uh, the digital area, obviously, the DMA and now the DSA is also coming. There's been a reform of the way Article 22 cases are dealt with, i.e. key cases that do not meet the uh, jurisdictional thresholds. There's also something on uh, collective bargaining in the works. So a number of very important reforms uh, in, in many areas of the law. So it's an interesting contrast really between the two Margaret Vestagers uh, that we've had here in Brussels. She is also quite different from her predecessors uh, because she is not an academic like her predecessor, Mario Monti, who was, uh, as you know, a university professor and had a very, in my view, a very academic approach to cases that were being investigated by Digicomp. Typically, when you met with Mario Monti, uh, with companies and were discussing in, in a particular matter or case with him, he would read out from a paper a very different style with, with Vestager. Uh, Vestager is, you know, a very seasoned uh, politician. She's been, uh, played a very important role at national level. She was head of her Liberal Party in Denmark. So she is very good at negotiating uh, with parties, very courteous, but very firm. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to prohibit a transaction such as Siemens Alstom when both uh, the Chancellor Merkel and President Macron were calling her and trying to get her to change course. Now, if you compare it to other predecessor like uh, Mr. Almunia, who was a little bit, you know, a polar opposite to Mario Monti in the sense that he was a politician's politician with uh, probably not as much of an interest in policy in, in and of itself, but more of practical outcomes and how to deal with a political situation surrounding a technical decision, an antitrust decision. Margaret Vestager is more, in my view, more attentive to the law and the technicality than Almunia. So she is, in my view, a well-rounded antitrust commissioner. And as a practitioner, I have a lot of admiration uh, for what she has been able to achieve. 
Antoine, you've represented many clients before her. You've been in meetings with her. Tell us uh, what you like and what advice would you give companies that find themselves in front of her? So Margaret Vestager has a very uh, rational approach to her job. She knows she is not a technician. She will not discuss with companies the finer details of cases. And she will give a lot of discretion from that standpoint to uh, the DigiCom services. She knows that, you know, it's very difficult when you're in that position of power to have enough time to go into the detail. And she also realizes that's really not what is expected from her. But on the other hand, she will know her the file well enough to be able to steer the technicians in one direction or the other. So my advice to companies would be really to start working almost exclusively with uh, the DGCOM services before um, you know, trying to reach out to Margaret Vestager or her staff. If, however, and when companies get to a point where uh, you know, the technical level does need a political input in one way or another, in particular in difficult gray zone areas, uh, then reaching out with the CEO uh, of the clients uh, to Margaret Vestager and her staff, the cabinet, uh, is something that is perfectly doable and sometimes successful. Antoine, thank you for that. Let me turn now uh, to mergers. Uh, 20 years ago, Enrique, as you'll recall well, the European Commission was uh, seen as something of an outlier. It was criticized by the then leaders of the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, in particular for its approach to conglomerate mergers. Since then, we've seen the rise of China. Almost 100 countries around the world have uh, adopted merger control regimes. We've seen an emboldened CMA post-Brexit and progressive leaders of the FTC and the Department of Justice in the United States. How would you characterize the Commission's current enforcement environment in the field of merger control? I would characterize uh, the, the current status of, of, of enforcement in merger control in Europe as uh, one of maturity, stability, uh, moderation, but still uh, subject to a number of uh, let's say, uh, open issues uh, that uh, need some, some development uh, with a view to providing companies and advisors more, more legal certainty. So I think that in a number of fields, including unilateral effects, which was a, a topic hotly debated uh, during the 90s and which led, as you know, to the well-known judgment of the court in air tours, uh, where the court essentially said you cannot use the instrument of collective dominance to to challenge unilateral effects. I think that we have come a long way to clarify the law, to provide legal certainty. There are open issues there. I mentioned uh, in other discussions, uh, the debate among uh, different parties on, on the interplay between price competition and, in, and investment competition. This is something that is now being litigated before the courts and, and we may get some clarity in the Hutchinson case. Collective dominance has uh, become increasingly 
uh, or rarely uh, used uh, rather by the European Commission because uh, the expansion of unilateral effects has allowed them to limit this, uh, this type of theories to very exceptional cases like the telecom case in, in Italy where they, they found actual evidence of, of pollution which allowed them to consider that, that the transaction would increase the likelihood of, of tacit collusion in the future. But by and large, it is a theory of harm that is rarely used by the European Commission. Or in the field of non-horizontal effects, uh, we have seen also a significant evolution in the thinking of the, of the Commission, quite uh, aggressive in the 90s and early 2000, but progressively through the uh, reflection prompted by a couple of uh, defeats in courts, uh, in, in, in the European courts, including the Tetra Laval case, the Commission published the non-horizontal merger guidelines. And since then, I have to say that the, the approach to vertical and conglomerate mergers has become increasingly predictable. Uh, but there are, uh, again, in this field, as I mentioned before, still a number of open issues, in particular with regard to non-horizontal mergers. There is an increased debate about uh, the ability of the European Commission to, to accept uh, non-divestiture mergers. This has to be seen in the light of the position taken more, more recently by the CMA and the, and the Federal Trade Commission, and for a very long period of time also by the, by the German authorities vis-à-vis what they call non-structural remedies, non-divestiture remedies. Uh, the Commission is under severe pressure from other authorities uh, to, to follow the same path. It hasn't. And uh, I think that that is a, a very important and uh, significant development, but the jury is out as to whether they will continue to hold the fort and maintain the flexibility and openness that they have had his- historically in dealing with uh, solutions to non-vertical mergers. There remain, again, a couple of issues that uh, create some anxiety when, when providing legal advice to clients. I'm referring to the topic of innovation, and I'm referring to the topic of uh, the so-called killer acquisitions. Uh, I think that these are theories that the Commission has been trying to develop, uh, innovation in Dao Dupont, uh, killer acquisitions in a number of of cases where they have tested the bounds of how far they can go uh, in in challenging transactions based on on elimination of potential competition. I think that uh, more clarity is required there and that the Commission, if they want to to continue challenging transactions uh, on the basis of any of these two theories of harm, uh, will have to provide more more guidance and and predictability. Again, we are talking about a limited number of cases. There is no indication that this is going to become the mainstream approach to innovation competition in, in pharma or IT cases. But if that is the, the line they, they, they would like to pursue, we will need to have more clarity and predictability. Enrique, I'd like to turn to a different topic now, the jurisdictional scope of the European merger regulation. As you know well, over the last 20 years, there have been a series of occasions when the European Commission has considered changing the jurisdictional scope of the regulation, first to capture non-controlling minority shareholdings, and then it flirted with the idea of introducing transaction value tests. The recent focus has been on killer acquisitions. These are acquisitions of nascent competitors by important incumbents, where there's a concern that the rationale for the transaction may be for the incumbent to suppress potential competition from an emerging rival. 
And the Commission decided in a guidance paper issued in March 2021 that instead of changing the jurisdictional thresholds, it would go down a different path. It would encourage member states to use a provision of the merger regulation that had existed for some time but hadn't been used very often that allows member state competition authorities to ask the European Commission to analyse transactions that don't meet national merger control thresholds. So these are transactions that are so small, they clearly don't meet the European thresholds, they don't even meet the national thresholds. And what the Commission's been doing is encouraging member states in this guidance paper to refer transactions to Brussels. Now, the policy was controversial for a number of reasons when it was introduced. And the first transaction on which this guidance paper was effectively employed has gone to the European courts. And the General Court, in a recent landmark judgment, just validated the Commission's approach in respect of the Illumina Grail transaction. So we're now in a world where member state authorities are positively encouraged by the Commission to refer transactions to Brussels that don't meet national thresholds, but which they believe may threaten competition at the national level. And these can be transactions that have closed. So there's a significant blurring, if you like, of some of the principles that have been at the centre of the European merger regulation since the beginning. Enrique, that's a very long lead-in. You've been at the heart of this debate for the last 20 years. Tell us what you think are the implications of this important judgment. This is indeed um, a very interesting development uh, and, and not uh, unproblematic. I think we need to discuss two aspects of this, of this judgment. On the one hand, the implications of the judgment. If this judgment were to be upheld, we, we all know that uh, Illumina is likely to, to appeal the judgment of the, of the general court. And it will be interesting to see how they transform the debate into to appealable points of law. So that remains to be seen. And I'll come back to that in a second. The second one is the implications, eh? the implications of the, of the judgment and, and the new policy. You very well identify two of the crown jewels of European merger control worldwide. The first one was the bright line uh, when it comes to determining what transactions are notifiable or not. And the second one is the principle that the transactions which are reviewed and approved and closed they can never be reviewed again. With a new policy, there is a risk, as in Illumina, that uh, a transaction which has already closed uh, could be reviewed by the European Commission through member states. That is really problematic in a context where, as you know, historically, the European Union has uh, always uh, defended the view that it was one of the uh, jurisdictions with uh, better legal certain certainty across the world. And the second one is the one that we all know is uh, how uncertain is going to be for companies which uh, do transactions, which review thoroughly where they need to notify and come to the conclusion that there is no filing in Europe, either at national or European level. But nonetheless, uh, they remain at the, say, the mercy of uh, the, the possible cherry picking of either member states, European Commission or third parties. Because let's not forget that in, in Illumina Grey, all this started with a complaint filed by a third party with the European Commission that triggered a relatively lengthy period where the Commission reflected about, about the transaction. Then they invited member states uh, to refer. And only after that invitation, they published in March last year this guidance on Article 22. So there are a number of uh, implications that, if you want, we can dissect one by one, but perhaps we can sequence them in two stages and, and we can debate about them. The first one is uh, whether we have enough clarity about the type of transactions that the European Commission is likely to call in. 
you mentioned correctly that they're interested in killer acquisitions, in particular in the IT and digital sectors. But once you have opened the, the Pandora box, innovation is pervasive in society, and it is more likely than not that third parties may identify in the future uh, cases which are similar in that they involve new entrants, they involve new technologies that go well beyond the digital and the IT sector. So that is, I think we cannot simply rely on the fact that the Commission is now interested in, in these areas as a guarantee that in the future it will not be extended to other economic sectors. First. Second is the timing of the intervention. So as you know, in this case, there was a, a heated debate about whether or not the Commission had acted diligently in calling in this transaction. In fact, the court in, in the judgment, the general court recognized that the period of time the commission took to request member states to make the referral was a bit long. And uh, in fact, it was not reasonable. However, it didn't draw the conclusion that it was illegal. Uh, so <laughs> that is the uncertainty. So wh where do we draw the line about the amount of time or the amount of information that the European Commission or national jurisdictions should have before they trigger this uh, taxing process for, for companies. There is uncertainty on this, and there is uncertainty, as I mentioned, on the category of cases which are likely to be called in. That means that, in my opinion, the, the important feature of this uh, judgment, subject to a possible appeal, and that subject to, to, to the European Court of Justice having a different interpretation of the law, is the, the needed guidance that I think the Commission will have to put together urgently because uh, we as practitioners, we are advising companies and they are eager to understand what are the implications. Now, as you know, in the guidance paper, they, they, the Commission says, well, you can always come and discuss with us. But is that the practical uh, solution? Is it, do we want to create a mega filtering agency that is going to review absolutely every transaction that could have any conceivable effect uh, on trade in the European Union in areas which may be debatable as to whether or not they could be problematic and the Commission is going to filter them out and we will need to have these pre-notification discussions which, as we all know, can be very lengthy. That is a big question mark as well and that is why I think and I hope that the European Commission, conscious now of the enormous responsibility that the Court has given it, uh, will issue without delay a set of guidelines which are going to narrow, hopefully, down the categories, the type of information and the timing of intervention of the European Commission. Enrique, thank you very much. So the old world, where one analysed whether transactions were reportable in Brussels, and then if they weren't, you analysed whether they were subject to national merger uh, rules, we now have a third possibility, the possibility that a national authority, possibly with the encouragement of the European Commission, may call in a transaction, in effect a device that's existed in the UK and elsewhere, and have a national authority or several authorities refer that uh, transaction to Brussels. And as you pointed out, there is the possibility for the Commission uh, to consult with the Commission and national authorities about whether a transaction is likely to be called in. But that's fraught with difficulties and it's going to take time. So, in terms of your advice to companies, what are you telling them to do today? We have been advising that the, the, the area, the, the law was still uncertain, that uh, the European Commission was still to, to get these powers directly from the court. But now you're right. Now we cannot rely on, on this legal limbo because there is a clear judgment from the general court. There may be a, an appeal. We'll see what happens. But in the meantime, clearly the Commission has obtained this validation. I would encourage the Commission strongly to, to revisit their, their guidance uh, from last year and, and provide more, more detail and more uh, business-friendly 
benchmarks that can be used on, on a daily basis. So in practice, uh, we are taking le- relatively literally the advice of the European Commission in the guidance, uh, saying that, uh, uh, well, the Commission says that uh, they, are, they are focusing on IT, digital markets, uh, and in fact, uh, the DMA has a provision, uh, I think it's Article 14, that requires uh, the companies caught by the by the provisions of the DMA to notify all transactions to the uh, European Commission, regardless of whether or not they fall under the major control regulation. So that may be already a, a significant uh, filter because the Commission will, in any event, and regardless of this ruling, uh, become aware of every transaction uh, carried out or planned to be carried out by, by digital companies. And if this instrument, as it is now, is applicable, then then we assume that there is going to be quite a lot of focus on those companies in the short to medium term. So I think that for the digital world, it's very clear the advice is going to be in any event you need to notify, and uh, because it's more likely than not that uh, if the transaction involves a, a new entrant and you have a, a solid position, uh, unless it's clearly a complementary transaction, my impression is that we will need to advise companies here to talk to the commission and explain the rationale for the transaction, the reasons why we believe this is not the case. They should be should be given priority through through this new instrument of Article 22, and, and hope that through this process the commission will will more more often than not decide not to take the case. Again, I I don't want to underestimate how painful this exercise is going to be, because we all know how difficult and how lengthy pre-notification discussions are in cases where there is a notification. If you add to that a layer of of discussion around uh, effect on trade and substance, uh, which is not necessarily what happens in pre-notification discussions. Pre-notification discussions, as as you know, Nick, uh, they tend to focus on the amount of information that has to be given, uh, timing, et cetera, et cetera. But there is not an in-depth discussion about whether or not the transaction is going to be challenged by the European Commission. Now, because there is a link between the jurisdictional aspect of the case and the substantive aspect of the case, and that is the, the difficulty with Article 22, the, the merit of, of our merger control regulation today is that it's based on, on thresholds. So you don't need to prejudge the substance of, of the case when, when uh, a transaction is, is caught by the merger control regulation. Unfortunately, with Article 22, you have a two-limb test where you need to establish effect on trade, but also a threat of uh, significantly uh, or substantially uh, affecting competition, which in practice means that you need to to establish the link between the two. So I think it's going to be very complicated because even in cases where you may think uh, that this is a transaction the commission may be interested in, unless you have a clear cut uh, understanding of the impact of the transaction, and you can very clearly from the beginning exclude competition concerns, I think it's going to be a case-by-case approach because in some cases you may want to take the risk of uh, uh, not reporting, not discussing in pre-notification with anyone uh, and see how things go based on the fact that the transaction is not reportable and even close the transaction in the knowledge that uh, at least if the transaction is closed and the European Commission objects, you have a chance to salvage the transaction and not to get the transaction killed on account of of the, of the passage of time, which is something that, as you know, when, when you have a deal that is subject to a timeline uh, and that timeline is, is, is close to ending, transactions fall apart simply by dint of the, of the passage of time. 
uh, without the authorities having to take a decision. You close a transaction. We are in a territory where companies are going to, to fight uh, to the bitter end. And uh, the commission will have to be, I think, very selective in deciding whether or not they want to take a case. Because Illumina, I think, uh, Grail is a good example. It's a case that has started with, with litigation, first because of Article 22, then because of the closing of the transaction. And ultimately, if there is a negative decision, there will be still further litigation on the merits of the case. So I think that that maybe has the advantage of creating some discipline on the European Commission to be selective and to be really, really, really sure that if they want to object to a transaction, there is a clear-cut case for them to, to intervene. That brings me to the, to the broader debate about jurisdiction. The European Commission has tried historically to introduce some form of asset-based uh, test uh, to be able to, to control transactions uh, more easily in the fields of uh, pharma, IT, digital, et cetera, et cetera. They attempted, they opened the debate uh, during the Vestager administration, but there was uh, a sense that, uh, first of all, it was not easy to identify a clear-cut set of rules to allow the commission to intervene in this type of transactions, A, and second, there was the, the fear that uh, going to the Council of Ministers with a proposal to modify the thresholds to be able to challenge uh, or at least to review more transactions, that could give uh, the Council of Ministers an opportunity uh, not just to discuss the jurisdictional aspects of the, of the case, but to try to incorporate in the, in the field of merger control uh, industrial policy consideration. Uh, Antoine uh, was referring before to the national champions debate and, and, the, and the pressure to, to be more open uh, in dealing with transactions affecting European companies which are competing in global markets uh, and that are felt to, to need more scale to be able to compete in these international markets, but at the same time at the cost of perhaps creating situations of, of market power at uh, European level. So that is the traditional debate about national champions or European champions. And there have been some, some voices in Europe advocating uh, for the creation of a new layer of decision-making at, uh, at the merger control level, whereby after the European Commission has taken a decision on the merits of the antitrust, the Council of Ministers will, would have the possibility to overrule that decision on industrial policy consideration or other, other policy considerations, and either through remedies or a sheer authorization, uh, allow transactions that would have been otherwise blocked on competition grounds. That was, I think, a significant concern on the part of the Commission, and, and, and I think it led it to abandon the way, the, the way of modifying the, or, the, or the path of modifying the merger regulation, and, and they came to this solution of Article 22 that we know is, is being challenged in the courts and is, frankly speaking, in the absence of a significant amount of, of further clarification and guidance and narrowing down the policy is going to be frankly speaking, a nightmare. I would conclude by, by saying that, by and large, uh, the, the system of merger control today, where we stand today, is probably the most stable, predictable, and uh, even though at times it may be difficult, the one where we can anticipate uh, what, what the result may be, and if needed, the, the remedies and solutions that ought to be offered to, to move on and, and get the transaction done. So it's interesting to compare how transformative uh, Commissioner Vestaya has been with respect to the digital platforms at the forefront of the push to 
to bring in a new regulatory regime. In the field of merger control, though, it sounds like she's been a relatively conservative figure, resisting uh, pressure to align herself with those who've been uh, critical of under-enforcement in the past, uh, but also uh, resisting pressure um, to approve the creation of national champions or European champions. Do you agree that in the field of merger control, she's been a rather conservative figure? I'm not, not sure about these labels of conservative, progressive. Uh, when you were, you were referring, uh, the, during your introduction, uh, uh, you were referring to the, the appointment of progressive uh, authorities or, or figures in, in the US. Um, I, I'm not sure what that means in practice, because what I think uh, Vestager, uh, Executive Vice President Vestager, and uh, as Mario Monte did in, in his time, trying to achieve here is to steer the, the necessary middle ground between promoting a free and open market economy in the European Union, guided by principles of supply and demand and a healthy market structure governed by obviously a certain number of principles that we ought to abide by, but ultimately trusting the market mechanism as the right mechanism to, to allocate resources in society. I think that that is what, what is guiding her. Obviously, when confronted with situations where there is an excess of, of use of market power or, 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 or transactions that are likely to lead to anti-competitive effects in the traditional sense, she has acted, and she has acted very robustly, very robustly. And not only in cases where you may say the debate was about national champions or not national, national champions. She, she has been extremely tough in transactions who were not politically driven, but that on the merits, uh, they consider that... Uh, uh, were uh, not uh, amenable to achieving uh, the objectives of competition, which is consumer welfare. So I think that the real debate is not so much about being conservative or being progressive, but about what the objectives of, of antitrust should be. I think that she's guided by the consumer welfare standard, which is a traditional one, and other authorities are trying to, in my opinion, humble opinion, trying to pollute the competition law instrument with other objectives, which could be uh, equity, which could be environmental protection, it could be many different things. But you know, it is a well-known principle in, in economics that uh, if you want to achieve a certain uh, objective in economic terms, you cannot use one instrument to achieve multiple uh, objectives. And, and the difficulty with what we are seeing in other, in other jurisdictions is that perfectly legitimate objectives which could be achieved with different instruments, policy instruments, are, being, are trying to be achieved with the antitrust instrument. And, and the historical experience when we have seen in the 60s, uh, and even at the beginning of, the, of, the, of merger control in Europe, of, of trying to combine different objectives object, or, or achieve different objectives with, with the same instrument is that you get a very dissatisfactory result uh, in, in the marketplace eh? and inefficiencies. And uh, uh, if, not, you, if you don't get inefficiencies, you kill efficiencies. And so th this is what I think the debate is all about. And I don't consider, against this background, I don't consider uh, Vestager as being conservative, because I think that when she needs to intervene, she intervene, intervenes, and she's absolutely independent in, in doing that. But she's guided by what she considers to be the right principle. And I personally share this objective, which is, that uh, individual cases ought to be assessed on the basis of the of the of the consumer welfare standard 
and when the companies can, can make it, she's fine to clear, to clear with conditions and obligations. And when that is not the case, uh, then she's, she doesn't hesitate to prohibit. So that is where I see it. And I, I, I don't believe uh, that, that she's conservative. I think that she is open to exploring new avenues when needed, taking her responsibilities, uh, sometimes taking, being, being, taking risks like she did, for example, with Article 22. Bottom line, uh, I don't think she's she's conservative. I think I think she is simply guided by by uh, consumer welfare standards. Antoine, do you see her as a conservative figure in the field of merger control? What I would say is that Vestager isn't what I would call a an antitrust hipster. I.e., she is. She hasn't written any uh, strident articles about the use of antitrust in order to achieve uh, you know, so- social redistribution. She has not argued in favor of transforming the approach to labor markets, uh, although she, the, the DGCOMP is clearly looking at that area. I don't think she's taken a very abrasive position on environmental topics, to give a few examples. So from that standpoint, I think you're right in saying, at least if not a conservative, she is a moderate in antitrust terms. But she's a very good politician at the same time. You know, in order to deflect the discussion on industrial uh, champions, uh, which you know was a real threat at the beginning of her second mandate, was a real threat to the integrity of the merger control process in Europe, She has very astutely proposed two reforms. One of them concerns foreign subsidies, you know, to counter the companies, state-owned companies, most of them, who are benefiting from unfair advantage. And secondly, she uh, is now looking at, you know, deciding whether a typical market definition should be changed in order to take into account um, competition at the global level. So I think she's very astutely uh, responded to the worries uh, that were broached by uh, some member states, Germany and France in particular, and has, um, I think, managed to defend the existing antitrust instruments by doing that. So let me turn now to antitrust enforcement. That falls into two main fields, Article 101, concerned with anti-competitive agreements, and Article 102, concerned with unilateral conduct by dominant companies. Somewhat of a perception that cartel enforcement has been less aggressive over the last few years. To some extent, that may be attributed to COVID. To some extent, no, it may be a result of uh, the success of uh, follow-on damages um, actions being brought and the chilling effect that has on companies' readiness to apply for leniency. Let me turn now to Isabel Rooms, who practices a great deal in this area. What's going on in the field of cartel enforcement? What does the European Commission have in mind for the coming years? And what, if anything, is the European Commission planning to do as a matter of policy? Thank you, Nick. And you've already highlighted a number of very relevant points. 
as a starting point, it, it's safe to say that reinvigorating hardcore uh, cartel enforcement is high on Vestager's agenda, most likely also due to the criticism that she's received over the last few years. We have seen um, seven inspections recently, uh, four of which took place in hardcore cartels. So it started with the wood pulp industry in the fall of uh, 2021. And uh, in March 2022, the EC and the CMA uh, launched a parallel investigation uh, into conduct for end-of-life vehicles recycling. Most recently, so in, in May and June 2022, raids were conducted in the fashion industry on the one hand and in the sector of drinking water and waste water infrastructure. So a reboost was desperately needed. During the pandemic, obviously, there have been uh, no inspections, but this affects the pipeline of cartel cases. And it does create a, a long-term issue, given, as you mentioned, the, the reliance of authorities on leniency application. So overall, more than 50% of the cases uh, tend to come from leniency applications. And that is the case both at uh, European Commission and uh, national level. And as you alluded to, it seems leniency is no longer attractive, or at least no longer as attractive. You don't find official EC statistics indicating the number of leniency applications, which is quite uh, telling in and of itself. But if you look at private reports, we can clearly see a drop. In Germany specifically, uh, some leniency statistics are available, and these have made it clear that there's a significant drop in leniency application in, in recent years especially compared to five uh, or six years ago. And you also see the numbers uh, systematically reducing. So each year, the statistics drop, which uh, should be clear sign to regulators that uh, they need to do something to increase the attractiveness and that they also need to start diversifying to have a good pipeline of cases and maintain deterrence. So this, as I said, prompts a question as to what authorities should be doing. You already alluded to the private damages directive. And that has spurred on a growth of the plaintiff bars. Uh, suggestions have been made uh, to free immunity applicants from damages claims, but this doesn't seem to be uh, an obvious one, given that this goes against the, the private damages directive and EU case law in general. So there must be uh, something else that needs to that needs to be done. We can also see that the attractiveness of leniency is is impacted by the burden that's placed on companies. An another issue that has impacted the attractiveness of leniency is the duty for applicants to cooperate. Uh, this is something that leniency applicants want to do, but that can prove to be quite difficult in practice. As we've been able to see in the uh, global car parts cartels, because you need to gather evidence across the various jurisdictions and so on. That results in a situation where you have multiple parallel investigations in a whole suite of jurisdictions and where it may not be straightforward to avoid a fine in all of them, given that that requires the ability to bring sufficient evidence and so on. So this may be another area that authorities need to tackle to make sure that leniency remains attractive to, uh, to companies. So I've highlighted a couple of issues. There's no immediate solution, but it is clear that it's high on the Commission's agenda and that the Commission is talking to businesses to understand how it can make leniency more attractive. It watched the space, I would say, because it's, uh, it's something where we may see some development. I think another point to highlight, uh, apart from leniency, is that it, of course, remains crucial for antitrust authorities to remain proactive and to do more screening. Again, 
the pandemic has made this uh, harder to some extent, but now that everyone's back to a normal working regime, screening can be put in place again. Uh, a lot of information is available in the public domain. So for instance, algorithms or artificial intelligence can be used to screen data, pricing data to, to, to spot issues. There is, of course, a, the possibility for cooperation between uh, authorities, and that can also bring cases um, or more cases better yet. And another new tool is the anonymous whistleblowing hotline. So again, uh, watch this space to see if this will generate new cases. A few final notes to, to leave you with. Um, I think one case has stood out to many in particular, and that was the car emissions cartel, where the EC ventured into new territory and found a bioobject restriction on non-price coordination. So the EC basically found that several car manufacturers had colluded on technical developments in the area of nitrogen oxide cleaning for diesel cars. And that resulted in fines of 875 million. So what this basically concerned was a coordination on compliance with technical standards where the parties had colluded on the size of a tank for a catalytic liquid. And so this was essentially a cartel that came down to an agreement of non-competition or limitation of competition on technical development. This was a leniency and a settlement case, and a further reduction was also granted, given that it concerned a novel case. And this is really something that has, has been very important and that people have discussed to a great extent. So I want to leave you with two final points on cartel enforcement. One is that we are likely to see more cases in the environmental sector given that the Green Deal and, and environmental objectives are high on the wider commission agenda. And the second one is that, uh, like in the US, there's also great uh, desire and a great uh, policy ambition for the EC and national competition authorities to focus on labor markets and to, to find and prosecute uh, legitimate non-hire and uh, non-poach agreements between competitors. So all, all in all, we have seen an uptick in cartel enforcement in 2021 where despite pandemic conditions, the EC finished several cases and imposed fines of close to 1.7 billion, which was just below the level it achieved in 2017. So let me turn now to Article 102. We're living through what is uh, somewhat of a golden age in 102. More commission decisions and significant number of those cases going to the community courts, which are having an opportunity, an historic opportunity really, to refashion the law. Uh, can you explain the issues that are before the court and give us your view on how you expect the law in this field to evolve? There is indeed an unprecedented number of Article 102 appeal cases pending, and it's safe to say appeals are definitely on the rise. There's currently about 25 cases pending before European courts, and that includes a number of preliminary rulings. And all of this is happening in a world where regulators are increasingly stretching the boundaries of Article 102. A number of these appeals are very important and are the outcome of them is long awaited because they go to delineating and clarifying the reach of Article 102. What we see is that the courts are generally showing a greater intensity of review. Uh, and so that's been leading to a higher number of full and partial annulments. 
as we've seen recently in the Qualcomm exclusivity payments case, and as we've seen in the Intel and Survey cases uh, a while back. This is in line with an ever-increasing focus on embracing a more economic and less formalistic approach to abuse of dominance cases much like we've also seen in Article 101. There's clearly been a spotlight on exclusionary abuses with exclusivity and refusal to supply being front and center. Now, you asked for uh, a couple of things to look forward to in the years to come. So there's four things that that come to mind in particular. Uh, First, there's been a great deal of discussion on the special responsibility of uh, dominant companies and in particular, when their conduct can be considered abusive. It's long been understood that there's no need to demonstrate actual anti-competitive effects or prove anti-competitive intent for an abuse to be established, even if these can be factors in establishing the abuse. So that begs the question, what is the applicable legal test? Antitrust authorities must show that conduct is capable of producing anti-competitive effects, such as foreclosure, And in doing so, very importantly, they have to take account of all relevant circumstances. So regulators cannot rely on formalistic assumptions. And it's also been made very clear that they must engage with the DOMCOs on the evidence and the justifications that they put forward. In some cases, a counterfactual analysis can be helpful to establish what the situation would be absent the allegedly abusive conduct, for instance. And it's been made very clear that uh, authorities need to have a discussion and, and conduct a thorough analysis on these points and cannot simply assume effects. So in this context, there's been a focus on the scope and interpretation of the notion of competition on the merits. And in that regard, the as efficient competitor test, which can be used to examine whether conduct amounts to competition on the merits. As such, it's been made clear that if an equally efficient competitor could replicate the conduct, Arguably, this is competition on the merits and there cannot be uh, a finding of abuse. And this is an important core principle that uh, we see recurring in the various appeal cases. So the Qualcomm judgment uh, has been uh, very important and is is heavily debated. And it confirmed the effects-based approach that uh, the courts have also taken in Intel when it comes to exclusivity dealing. It will be interesting to see if this uh, effects-based approach will be uh, upheld by the Court of Justice in the uh, Intel case, which the commission has decided to appeal. And another one to look out for is the predatory pricing appeal that Qualcomm has also launched before the general court. It will be also interesting to see how the principles on competition on the merits uh, will be applied in the three pending Google appeals. So there's uh, Google Shopping before the European Court of Justice, and then Google Android and AdSense before the general court. So there also we can expect more clarity on the precise scope of competition on the merits. A second point to flag is that there's been a lot of debate around the need to demonstrate that access to an infrastructure is indispensable for there to be a duty to deal. So the Court of Justice has acknowledged that obliging shared access could be harmful to competition in the long run, as it may affect firms' incentives to invest and innovate. That is clear in cases of first-time de novo access, because there you can clearly see the biggest uh, impact on the freedom to contract. And in these cases, the indispensable nature of the of the asset will be really important in deciding whether there is a requirement to deal. The Court of Justice has, however, held that this is different in cases of constructive refusal to deal, where the dominant company has either already decided to deal or it has an obligation to deal, for instance, following a regulatory obligation. 
but where the dominant company may look to worsen or alter the conditions under which it does so. And there, it's basically been held that indispensability is not a must. And so the EU courts are due to rule on a number of cases in the years to come, where the need for indispensability will be further examined, applied, and potentially refined. So the third development that uh, we see is an increased focus on market definition uh, in Article 102 appeal cases, but I think it's fair to say also more generally in competition law. And this is really important in, in, in 102 because market definition is, of course, the starting point for any finding of abuse. And the survey judgment uh, marked the first time in decades that the EU General Court had annulled an abuse of dominance finding based on a narrow single molecule market definition in the pharmaceutical sector. And it mainly did so because the Commission had not taken into account non-price factors that had an impact on the substitutability. So it will be very interesting to see if this judgment is upheld by the Court of Justice, which in the past has actually been rather generous on market definition and on the inclusion of potential competition. It's also worth noting that the European Commission is uh, subject to a larger number of procedural challenges in relation to dominance cases. So in the years to come, clarity will be given on the validity of parallel investigations at EU and national level following an appeal by Amazon. And there's also a range of questions that are being raised in relation to the use of evidence, including the need to create uh, de novo pieces of evidence. And a final point to say is that uh, the Commission is vigorously contesting the need to repay default interest, and in particular also the amount of default interest, in addition to the nominal amount of the fine in cases where uh, its fines are uh, annulled or reduced. So this question has now been put to the uh, EU Court of Justice, and the ultimate outcome on this point will be very important for the Commission altogether, because it will have an impact on uh, cases where substantial fines are imposed and where there's a risk that substantial fines are, are annulled. And it has a practical impact also on pending Intel and Qualcomm cases where the uh, EC's fines have been annulled and where the repayment issue is, is pressing. So yes, Nick, in conclusion, there's currently a lot of moving pieces and it is without hesitation a golden era in judicial review of dominance cases. So again, uh, a space to watch. Seems to me interesting if you compare uh, the court's approach to uh, 101, where the court has pretty much in every case confirmed the, uh, the commission effect of its cartel cases with 102, where the court seems to be pushing back on the commission and actually making it harder for the commission to bring cases. Would you agree with that? I think also in Article 101, there's a lot of discussion around uh, by object uh, qualifications. So I think we will also need to see how uh, the case law develops on that point. But I agree with you that uh, the court has definitely been much more deferential there to the European Commission. On Article 102, in my view there, the issue is that, as I, as I mentioned in the beginning, the Commission is really stretching the boundaries of Article 102 and starting to find abuses in what are quite normal trading practices, such as uh, discounts, such as refusing to deal. And there, I find that it's uh, the, the courts are right to uh, hold back, hold the commission to a high standard on effects, because otherwise, uh, having a position of dominance is not uh, an issue in and of itself. And if you don't scrutinize the alleged abuse for its effects, then you would move to a situation where you would basically punishing the existence of dominance or the 
establishment of a dominant position, which is not the aim of Article 102. It is mainly to see that companies with that hold a dominant position uh, do not make use of that in a way that goes against fair competition and that you maintain a level playing field that way. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Antoine. Thank you, Enrique, for a fascinating discussion of Commissioner Vastaya's second term and what's going on in the fields of merger control, uh, cartel enforcement, and Article 102.